0: Continuous Improvement comes in lots of different flavors and styles. I'm Bella Engelbeck, and I'm inviting you to journey with me to the edges of lean. Episode 103, Continuous Improvement and Process Science with Sam Drowshak. Sam Drowshak is a leader in process science. His work is to help organizations achieve maximum efficiency in business processes and energy flow. He has even developed a universal process mapping language adopted as the set standard for multiple large enterprises globally. Sam joined me at the Ages of Lean to share his insights on process science in the digital age and on life in an RV. Sam Droshek, welcome to the Ages of Lean.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's great to have you here today, Sam. Hey, tell us about Sam.
1: Sure thing. So I'm Sam Droshek. And I am the chief process scientist and co-founder at Truval, which is a company that is deploying uh, process knowledge, process consulting knowledge into scalable software solutions. And I consider myself a real lean nut. I've been doing process work exclusively for the last 15 years. I, Before Truval, and still on the side, I have my own consulting agency that's just focused on Lean Six Sigma for digital services and process science-based consulting. So my whole life revolves around process work and other than just focus on process and writing and speaking and doing process work my wife and I travel the country in an RV we have two dogs and a cat and that's pretty much me in a nutshell
0: wow that's that is really amazing so Sam when you say process science what what does that mean to you and I'm very interested about about using the word science with process tell me what that means to you
1: sure So the idea behind process science is that it's the, you know, and actually now there's a Wikipedia page. So there's a bunch of scientists who are actually studying this and trying to name it also in tandem with me. But it's the idea that you're studying things in motion, you're studying the domain of change. And for me, I I also lump in there studying how energy flows through uh, processes, I guess you could say, but there's more to it than that. But more so than that, at, at an overall level, it's the idea that process work and the study of how processes and systems are, especially in the business world, can be uh, apply, like can be approached with the scientific method and that level of rigor. So let me explain it like this. If you were hiring multiple consultancies, they would all tell you it's their experience and their ability to come in and form an opinion that you're hiring for. And that that by its nature keeps this type of process work, which is often to the realm of consultants very unscientific. Whereas in process science, we posit that if you have the right tools and you have the right process data, you should be able to apply a process scientific knowledge data, like basically domain of knowledge and get the same outcomes every time you're doing process analysis. So it's that replicability, it's that consistency instead of accuracy, and it's sort of the onus on the practitioner too, to be able to write out explicit instructions, make sure they're translating their findings the right way and being able to share this so that it's scalable and everyone has access to it. And then also it can grow. So all of those kind of follow that vein of what makes it scientific versus unscientific.
0: Yeah, because you know science is a search for knowledge, right? So it's, it's not just saying, and I think this is the difference between science and engineering, right? Engineering having been built science is that in engineering as you said you've done a certain number of experiments you know what the results of those experiments have been historically right so you can rely on that data then to make engineering decisions for the future right but but in science you want to keep advancing that uh, sort of that edge of knowledge right Here's where we understand. Here's where we don't understand. And now we're going to explore the space we don't understand. We're going to start with what we already know, right? And um, and I think that that's a it's it's an interesting way for people because a lot of people, as you know, in this field, come out of engineering and like things where we we know the data, we can do a test, we can we can see what the data is, but don't necessarily think about it. As being science. But the other thing is, Sam, when you talk about process science, when we talk about process, we're talking about, or are you talking about process that includes human beings? Because human beings are a whole other factor.
1: Right. By my definition, at least, I'll respond this way process is everything. Everything in motion can be classified in process terms. And therefore, yes, human beings are just a certain type of process. Everything. You know, in in the spaces I work in, I refer to this concept of having process vision, because when you start to really cultivate this process science mentality, this lean mentality that as it applies to everything in life, you start to see things in process. And there's nothing that doesn't fall into that category. It's very much like the broadest way to think about how energy moves through systems and creates outcomes. Um, So yes, people would be included people and companies business. I I mean, there's really nothing, you know, I always start every training I do on this topic saying that name something that's not a process. And of course it can't be named because everything is process. Yeah.
0: I think that's true. i mean, you know, in um, in, uh, the, the, improvement Carter. we talk about using block diagrams right and sometimes the pushback that you get from from someone is well i can't make a block diagram of that thing but which is a block diagram is just a simple process flow and um you almost always can right you you can but sometimes you're going to have to do some work to to figure out what the process is because the process is not you know, something like, um, you know, I'm going to put in an order, someone's going to generate the order that I want, give it to me, and I'm going to pay them for it. It's it's not as visible as that.
1: Well, processes, you know, when I hear people when I go places and they say, we don't have a process or a process doesn't exist, I know we have to step back and talk about definitions. Because like you said, there's not a place, especially in the business context, where a process doesn't exist. So when they're referring to that, they're usually referring to, a formal manual or some sort of bureaucratic series of auditable Mm -hmm. mechanisms. But in reality, even if your process is ad hoc every time you do it, and it's extremely chaotic, there's a process because the sausage is always being made for the most part. So it's really just like you said, it, it makes it the more organic it is, the more complex the actual documentation and maybe the elicitation of the process requirements. But there's no such thing as no process. And I think that speaks to how a lot of people have a different definition of the word process right off the bat, because there's just so much noise out there about, well, what is a process? How do you measure a process? How do you document a process? So, you know, a, a lot of times the definition is not quite encompassing enough.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I remember an executive who said to me once, you know, I really hate process. He said, I hate when you come in my office because I hate process. <laughs> yeah. I said, don't you like to go to the bar and get a beer? And he said, yes, I do. I said, well, if you go to the bar and you go up to the bar and you get a beer. There's a process for you getting that beer. He goes, "Oh yeah, I guess there is." I said, "If you and if you want the beer efficiently, you know, then we can talk about how you, you know, how you do that because you can certainly go in the bar and stand and wait for a long time and never get your beer, right?" So, so yeah, yeah. So, so and then you work in digital services. So tell me how all that works together because I think for uh, you know for 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 those of us who grew up in the process world of you know we're dealing again with things that we can see of. Um, tell us what, what process, uh, process science in digital services
1: for sure. Yeah. And this is where the whole scientific aspect of it becomes even more important because, well, let me tell as, let me answer that question with a teeny bit more about my background. So when I started, right, I started my career. I graduated from college right after the, the recession in 2008, And it was an interesting time because even then as becoming a process engineer, being interested in process, you learned Six Sigma or you learned lean in the more formal manufacturing derived Mm -hmm. uh, way. I mean, that was where all the academics still were. So even Six Sigma, which had been milling around in GE for what, 10 or 20 years at that point, it was still very much focused on manufacturing and the terminology and the way that it was applied, the way you thought about it even to the, you know, to the famous Gemba walk, which was get down on the floor and actually walk and absorb what ha- was happening in the process. But you know, as a young person at that time, the world was already shifting. A lot of the work that we were doing in financial services, legal services, there was a huge push at that time to outsource everything to different countries because that was now available. And there was no place to walk anymore. There was no place to actually see the process or absorb it with our tactile senses to actually say, here's all the people in a room who are working and doing the thing and watching it come down the the proverbial assembly line, so to speak. So there was a huge disconnect there. And the more that you try to apply the, the foundations or the math or the principles to different situations, it was really difficult. And we were seeing it at that time with other consulting entities who'd been practicing lean for a long time. They were having trouble catching up and keeping up and using the tools effectively in digital spaces. So I've really spent my whole career tackling that problem is another way you could say that I've where I've put my attention, which is that if you're going to apply good process improvement principles that are being iterated for the last almost century now, you've got to be able to update them so that it applies to companies that have no physical footprint, that are geographically dispersed, that are all over the world and only work at computers. So if you're going to watch somebody working, their whole day would just be sitting at a desk, just typing and clicking. And that doesn't give much interesting process material, process data for an engineer to work with. So you've got to be able to represent those models differently. You've got to be able to think about process differently. And that's a lot of where the process science is talking about normalizing virtual data, trying to figure out how we can use the really great richness of Lean and Six Sigma in places where it's completely virtualized. So that was the short answer, but kind of long rambling answer to, to that question. No, no, that
0: that that was that was a really good answer. And I think that that's I, you know, I certainly saw that too in the work that I was doing, that um, you know, particularly that there were people who would come in and do training for us and and we would do a training that would be all about I don't know if you remember that Move It game. That was the, like the first game that they would do in training. Um, and it uh it would be um you know, you're you're moving a package through a process. Yes, right? yes. And we, you think we use index cards? I've played it a few times with, with a few different people. I mean, so you use these index cards, and you know, at the end of the game, you you reduce the, all of the waste in the process, and yeah, you can actually deliver your packages perfectly in. 10 seconds or something. Cause you gave everybody a completely different job and didn't talk about how much you were going to pay them or what the work hours were going to be or any of those other things that you need to talk about when you're doing real change. Um, but but it was based on that idea of physical process. And then people leave the classroom, right? And they go back and sit down at their desk. Guess, and the next thing yeah. they, yeah, you know, they're at a Skype call, cause we were doing Skype in those days with someone in Japan and they're sharing, um, you know, information about something that they're trying to understand across cultural barriers and through the computer um and moving electronic work around right and yeah. so and so when the, when we for example you had an error um the error would be something that perhaps was happening inside the computer system and you might not know until you got to the end of the process, as opposed to, you know, going to visit a factory and you've got somebody who's actually looking at the thing and can say, yeah, you know this one's broken, you know, stop the line. We're gonna figure out why that one's broken.
1: Well, that's exactly, yeah, I was gonna say, and that's exactly right. And a lot of the analogs still exist, you know, inventory exists in the digital space. Clutter exists in the digital space. It's really just about creating the analogs and creating that conversation. So, a lot of it is just trying to help because if you don't create the connectivity between here's what they discovered in the physical space and here's how it, it relates to the digital space, it's hard for people, like you said, to go to a training, go back to their desk and make the, those connections if they're not stated explicitly, or at least that's what I found in my experience.
0: So, so, Sam, when you're working with an organization, what kind of problems do they ask you to come in and help them solve?
1: Oh, that's a great question. So the problems are are pretty, the the problems in the process-specific strategy and management consulting space that I'm in tend to be the same across most organizations. They are struggling with scaling is, I think, the number one thing that I get, which is that they've got a great process they put together. And a lot of times in the digital spaces that I serve, again, I I do a lot of work in media, financial services, legal services, the types where there's very intangible uh, processes going on. They put together a good process with a bunch of technology and it was moving for a little bit. But as soon as they try to scale it and they have to change Mm. all the pieces and parts, they can't do it anymore. And they find that they're throwing headcount at it and they just can't get any margin anymore. And a lot of people are struggling with growth, scaling and automation. Those are the three hotspots that I usually service. So they want to grow there and they're all related, of course. But the scaling and automation piece is the most Technical and process oriented, and digital companies are really struggling out there to either swap in and out pieces of technology, automate parts of their operating model to reduce their cost base, or generally scale an operating model that they think is working for them, um, especially if it necessitates changing a lot of the pieces around. So I would say that's very broad, you know, at a m- more specific level, implementing new technology, having cost overrun. Everything that process improvement professionals, I think, you know, tackle normally. I tackle Mm -hmm. those problems sort of day in and day out, just companies struggling with, I mean, the biggest one actually lately since COVID is a lot of people hire me directly because they don't even know what their process is to be very specific. They just want process. Because it
0: went home, right? The process went home and they don't know what happened to it. Yeah. No idea. There was like
1: a massive digitization, virtualization, whatever you'd want to call it. And now I get get tapped a lot just for my process mapping abilities to quickly be able to document and accurately structure process data to say, we don't actually know what our process is anymore because it's all over the world and nobody is in the same room doing it. And companies can't, they realize they're paralyzed. They can't do anything. They can't solve problems. They can't design new solutions if they don't have a baseline of process. So a very popular thing that I, I help companies with is what I just call process baselining, which is eliciting process requirements and very effectively documenting them into accurate and easy to use process maps.
0: And then when you're talking, I lo- you said something earlier that was very, very important and interesting and that it was about how the energy moves through the process. So the map is one thing, right, Sam? So you can make the map, but as you said, a lot of times, When somebody you know somebody says I have no process that you know of course there's a process or there may be multiple versions of the process as as different people execute it in different ways trying to get to the same result. So do you ever use any type of simulation or or any visualization to help people see not just the map but how that as you said the energy how things are moving through the process how the data or the information or whatever it is that they're working on how how what's really happening inside that process.
1: Sure. I love this question. I often do not have like a program or a tool I use to simulate flow just because none exists that are very effective. It's not because I wouldn't. Um, and because I don't have a tool that appropriately shows that at least at the level that I think is easy for people to grasp onto or right, is easy right. to create, uh, I mostly am drawing static process diagrams. And then we have discussions about flow as sort of an over layer to it because You capture a process, and if you capture it the right way, and again, there's a lot of different methods and opinions still out there about what is the right way to map a process. And that's part of the reason why the science science piece of this whole domain is so nascent, right? Because you can't get two people to map process the same, but that's aside. So let's just say that I have a process mapping language where I show usually a static process and then I always put flow on top of it. So when you talk about energy flow, it could be capital, it could be labor, it could be whatever transactional units that the client needs to see. But then you always have to say that after because otherwise you can't look at the process accurately. You can say, here's one unit, how it looks in just every step in static, and then here's 100 units a month, 100 units an hour, whatever it is. And then simple math is all I use. If you if you document the process the same way every time, you never need more than units per, like units moving through the process per unit time, some basic wait time, cycle time, lead time, and some basic cost measures. And that creates the story. Um, but that's all manual, unfortunately. And I'm cursing just the lack of tools to help <laughs> consultants do that.
0: <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Because, I mean, this has been a problem that's been around for... Forever, um, forever, and and there are some, you know, there are some big, very big and expensive simulation tools, you know, out there, but they're very big and expensive and you need, you need a bunch well, they're, of people they're, to
1: run them. They're unwieldy. I mean, that's part of the issue. Yeah. That That's part of the issue that's keeping, one of the things we, we work on in the company and now is just creating accessibility of these tools. Because like you said, everyone needs to see this modeling through their process, but not everyone can hire a process engineer to work on it for six months, to mm-hmm. use the software to create the model, that runs the numbers because it's just it's just the, the the learning curve and the cost is just way too high. But uh, you know, personally, I don't think it needs to be that complicated.
0: Yeah. So one of the piece of doing process mapping, and and I'm really interested in your perspective on this, Sam. One of the, one of the things that. Um, that I saw a lot in the work that I did was that when we mapped a process, we were very good at mapping the, you know, the, the flow of, of a thing, you know, or data or you know, whatever it was that was going through the process. But what was really hard for us was to map was the behavior of people in the process. So for example, where there was a point in the process where management decision was required. Right, and it always seemed to be so, sort of an unknown. Well, how you know? How, how would a manager act? What? How would they make that decision? Would they make the right decision? Would the manager be available to to make the decision at the right time? The impact of of managers in the process on the morale of the people working on the process and their engagement in doing the work. And I always felt that that stuff. It was really important to sort of understand that stuff in the context of of a process flow or a workflow, because mm. the impact of that is huge, right? You know, I need mean, uh, this didn't. You know, um, if something if something didn't get done because not because we didn't have someone to do the work, but because that person was not engaged because they were, you know, felt that they were in a in a difficult situation with their manager. You, you don't see that in. I never found a to map that. And I just was wondering, do you run into that? And how do you, how do you, how do you deal with that sort of more? I don't know if it's qualitative, but it's, it's, it's a different kind of data.
1: Sure. So this may sound a little extreme, but I wouldn't say that's a part of it. I would say that's all of it. Like Uh the the aspect that you just pointed out is all the, the most, the most important process information you need to know, which is the human dynamics of the process. Because today, most processes are still, if you're going to go through a change in process, the thing that's gonna block you is not, oh, this system is not behaving the right way or doesn't have the fields configured. It's all the dynamics you just mentioned, which is Mm -hmm. the actual review, the politics, the movement between people. And if anything, those are the only things worth mapping if you're process mapping. Now that may evoke thoughts in everyone who's listening of like, well, what would that map look like? Well, it's actually not that far off from mapping just the transaction, but you have to have a very human centric view. So the answer I have for you is that this is very important. The mapping language that I've created over the course of my career, and I still continue to use and I try to evangelize is a very human centric process mapping language. And the way that works is that you're tracking the transaction, yes, but you're doing it from the human perspective. So you're actually following the motion. What you're diagramming is the motion of the transaction as far as it goes through all the humans in the process. And the reason you do it that way is because if you don't do it that way, the process map or diagram you're building, it loses a a consistent sense of linear time. This is where you've asked me a question. I could probably go 15 hours in different directions. So just bear with me while I just hit a few (laughs) different points. No, keep going, keep going.
0: This is really good. So
1: the whole idea of, of losing your sense of linear time, if in the process map you go, okay, Frank gives it to Tom, gives it to Bill, gives it to Jerry. People can instantly imagine what that looks like in real time because we're all humans if you say that Bob gives it to Jerry and then gives it to a system and then a bunch of system tasks happen and that system shoots it over to the database and then a bunch of you know computations run against these tables, all of a sudden there's 17 boxes on the map that happen instantaneously. So mm-hmm. there's no, you've lost your sense of time and what for human readers, that's what loses your sense of orientation. So when I train on process mapping, you have to keep the process maps and the perspective so that it's just the actions that you could watch in the real world that people are having. Even if it's 15 people sitting at desks and receiving emails or hitting submit, you've got to map your map so that it's the people doing the things in in sequence. And when you do that, the approval steps... The wait times between people communicating, between system behavior, it shows itself. So this goes back to your original question, Bella, about well, how do you see the the exchanges and the things? If you're just carefully and consistently tracking the interactions between people in workplaces and work processes, you see where the lag is. You see where the drag are. You see, oh, there's six serial approvals here, where it goes from manager to senior manager to VP to president, and the process is stuck because it's in their inboxes six times in a row. Like you have to follow the trail of where people are touching the object that you're interested in. And if you're careful about that, when I make a process map now, I see the politics, I see the drama, Ah.
0: as soon as
1: I map something, I'm watching how many people are involved, how many people are touching it, the actual lag between transactions, the cycle times, where they're expanding and where they're contracting. And I can tell you from mapping this way, and after doing this for over a decade, when I look at a map of boxes and diamonds, I'm watching the drama play out. I'm watching the politics play out and I can see the history, but it's because I'm mapping in the same way every time. It's because I have this locked perspective and I can see the human dynamics and the human interplay. So again, I'll pause there because this, I'm very passionate about this topic. Like mapping is you can get so much from a good process map and if you have the right angle, and and that is the important part. It's getting it's asking non-judgmental questions and then putting the whole drama together because that's where all the problems are in business really.
0: Yeah, and I think you know one of the one of the things that um, you know I, I saw over and over and over again as a problem was governance, right? So the idea, okay, so we're going to go to a governance committee, and a governance committee is going to make a decision. But to your point, there's all you know, there's politics. There's always politics that's going to go into into those decisions, and there are other related processes, things like portfolio management, um, strategy. That feed into how and when governance is going to make a decision. And so you could look at a you could look at a, a map. I'm talking, you know, these were product development processes. I'm looking look at a map and it would look, well, this is a really nice, clean process. But you'd see those government governance decisions. And what would be invisible would be the amount of work that was that went into getting people ready to go to governance, the amount of fear. That was developing in those people as they got ready to go to governance. And then the delays when people went to governance and then a the decision was not made because there was something, other piece of information that people needed about, you know, well, you know, what was the budget going to be for next year? Well, we can't make a decision because we don't know what a budget is. So you
1: know,
0: yeah. But the map overall would look just lovely. But
1: um... yeah. Well, and that's the thing. And people, people, when they do process maps, to your point, the maps look lovely. A lot of people. Instinctively, cut out some of the noise when they map. They just want to follow yeah. how it goes from step to step to step. But if you ask, well, what happens if it doesn't get approved there? People don't ask the question, and then they don't they don't look at the alternate path sometimes. Because, like you said, clean maps are always are always you know if you look at a map and it's just one straight line going from end to end, that we've missed the the real meat of the process that we need to get, which is like you said, the interplay between, well, what if it doesn't clear there? What if QA catches it? How often is QA catching it? How often does the audit come out bad and has to be returned a line or redone right, or reworked? Right. And uh, you know that's all the dynamics. And like you said, a lot of the governance structures. I see this every day. It's such common when you look at the same process data all the time, the same way you write it, you start to see the patterns. And oftentimes governance, I call this sort of behind closed doors the TSA problem, right? Where you have one error, and then a whole governance process. At one point, it was an error that cost the company some money. At one point in the company's history, and then all of a sudden a QA process and a compliance process and a massive heavy checking process sits on top that only catches 0.1 errors out of every thousand times that it runs. But people don't look at it ever again and it just sits there and it just runs over and over and over and just eats up company resources. So, but this happens everywhere at every company, at every size. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's mm-hmm. people's natural reaction, unless you're looking at it, unless you understand where it came from and why it's there, it's hard to manage it.
0: Right right and and then there's the the company lore that goes along with that too well, you know yeah. when you, when you ask the question well well why do you do that why do you start to do that well then, you know then you then you might hear the horror story you know of the really bad thing that happened um but not everybody even knows the the story anymore and sometimes it gets bigger and yeah, avoided yeah
1: and, and then you point it out now you say well you know even if this horror story happens again it may cost you a million dollars but you're running 1.5 million dollars in audit every year trying to catch it. So just let it yeah. let it come, let it come. Sometimes you just need the right process data to, to walk people through the math.
0: Right, yeah, yeah. So what that gets into though Sam is, is as you're looking at that and you're looking at, as you said that, you're, what the people are doing in the process, even if it's a highly digitized process, a process with a lot of uh, work that's happening behind the scenes in databases and inside systems. What that comes down to then is you have to um, have to have a way to have some really honest conversations with people, and and get them to to talk to you in a way. I think you you know so you're coming in sort of like the process scientist to be able to th- come and think you like you like this really geeky guy, and then and then now you want to have a conversation with them or have them explain to you um, you know why they're behaving in a certain way and. Um, it, it comes down in many cases to behavior.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there, so there, there's still no better way I found to do process work than just elicitation. So I'm always sitting down in a room with one-on-one, sometimes with groups and having conversations about the process, as you mentioned. But, you know, I find that I never have to actually ask directly, well, what are the politics here? You know, it's never as hard-handed as, well, why is this mm-hmm. as, why is this, this way? And like having this sort of judgmental, dimension to it. You know, when you ask people, it's it's crazy and I'm sure people who do this work can relate. When you sit down and ask somebody, well, what's next? What's next? What's next? It just comes out naturally. It really does. Like I've never had an issue where I've had to drag it out of people that they they do this crazy convoluted process here and there and then it goes this way and goes that way because in their worlds, this is normal. Everyone who sits down and tells you their process it's so normal i've i've watched people who 98% of their function is waste it's just them milling around doing checking the checkers checkers work or auditing all day never catching any errors you know I, especially in bigger companies you see this all the time but they'll sit down and talk to you for an hour and a half with a straight face and tell you every single step that they do even if it sounds completely ridiculous if you just kind of stay on level and just walk through the process i've never had an issue capturing it and people usually aren't that defensive if you're just asking you know what what are the steps what's going on and then and then it tells the story though of the whole function the history of the process i find it so intriguing because the drama reveals itself but it's never really me having to dig it out too much maybe that is my scientific affect it's just like a clinical affect
0: yeah 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 well i mean you're not coming in to blame anybody or or say you know
1: well, it's like if you sit down with your doctor with a straight face and they ask you how you're doing, you're like, oh, great. I ate three hot dogs for breakfast and a pizza for lunch. And, <laughs> y- y- you know, I-, I had 15 donuts after dinner and they just <laughs> tell the doctor that and the doctor sits there and takes notes. It-, it feels like that. That's the interactions. But nobody is shy to tell tell the tale.
0: Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. What kind of solutions then? Um, I, I, I I won't say what kind what kind of solutions, but what are the kinds of things that you do to as you as you're working with a company and you're getting ready to to move on to leave them to to do some of this work on their own? What are you, What are you leaving them with? What are you building for them?
1: So, I really believe in building capability and empowering clients so they don't need me and they don't need mm-hmm. consultants. Uh, I'm, I'm really big on that, but I will say it's difficult. I mean, there's not a lot of good process mapping tools out there and I think that's the foundation. So, the one thing I try to leave clients with everywhere I go is this language aspect that you just touched on by happenstance, which is what is the way we talk about process? How do we communicate our process, you know, internally, externally, how do we document process? Because for the most part, most companies are out there And there's no answer for that. There's still no answer on the market. You've got BPMN 2.0. You've got UML. You've got some languages that engineers created, you know, decades ago. And no one's ever really attempted to create a more business-friendly language. And businesses are struggling. They want to talk process. They want to write it down. And they don't know how. So the one thing I, I leave most clients is, whether they can carry it forward or not, is talk about process this way. Write your process down this way. Think about process this way. And I usually offer training um, and uh, to what extent I can trying to leave this process centric culture behind, which is that if you can use your words to describe your process and you know how to and you've written it down one time, the muscle memory is there. And I do think it moves the needle in organizations. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend that it changes every organization significantly overnight. But I think you've got to be able to talk and think and process before you can do anything else and then beyond that you know leaving that behind leaving the methods and the thought leadership behind that it then it really varies so the answer to that question is some clients they want to understand the methodologies that we used on the project they want to understand how we document requirements they want a particular tool or a particular template and those i always just give away freely but that's very that's very variable depending on the depending on the engagement, uh-huh. but that process language pieces is, is always front and center. And it's always the gap that no one has. And if I can leave that with people, then I feel like my engagement is successful regardless of the project substance.
0: And you've enriched them by, by doing that.
1: Well, I've given them a yeah. voice so yeah. that they they can speak to each other you know, about this better. Cause a lot of people are just confused and it just makes them feel disempowered when they, they don't even know what their process is anymore. And that speaks back again to that digital space. You know, a manager can't manage if they don't know what they're looking at, what they're pointing at. They just feel disenfranchised.
0: Yeah. And especially in in today's very dispersed work environment where where you're not sitting next to the person. Or even if you are, they have their headphones on, you have your headphones on, and you don't really know what they're doing.
1: Yeah. Just I've worked for people groups for a year after COVID, and I'll never see them in person. I'll never sit in the same room. I'll never have a conversation with them live.
0: Sam, how do people find you?
1: People find me all sorts of ways. I try to be very open. You can always email me at sam samattruvel.com. That's T-R-U-V-L-E.com. I'm Sam Drawshack on LinkedIn. Um, I'm still the principal consultant at Cavi Consulting, but but I always tell people, email me, send me a message on LinkedIn, connect with me. You can go on any of the websites I'm affiliated with and hit me up at the info box. You usually get to me. So however is easiest for you.
0: That's, that's great. Well, we'll have that all in the show notes. Sam, you are traveling around the country with your wife, uh, two dogs, and a cat, right? You said. Um, oh, an and I forgot
1: baby. to mention in my in my bio, I just had a newborn too, so I have a three month old son. Oh, I and, know, like, and a
0: baby. Okay, so baby. tell us a little tell us a little bit about that life and the the, the process of uh, of uh, of being um, being travelers.
1: Sure. So the process of being travelers, I, I always like to say, you know, you have to be a pretty good process person to be able to to juggle all those things. But we have now, because of satellite internet, we can travel the country in RV. We like living in a very small space. My wife likes to do trip planning. And then really, it's a matter of we work on the road in the day. We explore new places. Every few weeks, we kind of go to a new locale in the United States. And a lot a lot of times, often we're just chasing good weather, to be frank, you know, because we're living and working. So it's really how do we beat the heat or how do we beat the cold? And we have nearly nothing tying us down. So until our family grows to a point where it's too big for for the for the for the car footprint, then we're just we're just gonna keep going.
0: So where have you been so far?
1: So we've been traveling since COVID. Basically, we've been to 36 states. I think there's so most of the U.S. Wow. Now we were chasing national parks for a while. So we've been to most of. I'd say we've been like 70% of the national parks, the big national parks, and that kind of like grounded our route through the United States. But yeah, besides a few, we, we haven't sent, done a lot of travel in the Midwest or I'm sorry. Yeah. The mid, the middle of the country, there's a few in there that keep evading us, but the whole Southern States, the Northern States, Western, Eastern coasts. So we basically now done all of the U S and some of Canada. So it's been really enjoyable, but yeah, we've been all over the place.
0: Wow. that That's amazing. So what have you learned about process in doing that?
1: I mean, process is everything. Yeah. So you know what I learned in my life. You, you you pointed out earlier what I find fascinating about traveling, and as as specifically as it relates to process, is you get to see the process of how this country, the governmental processes and the standard processes, how they manifest in different regions, and how the same types of people. Uh, The the process of being a person in one state versus another, it changes based on the environment. It changes based on the seasonality. I find that kind of thing fascinating as a a process scientist to look at, okay, how is the external environment crafting people's processes, like the way they live, the way that they embody themselves? And that's, you know, the United States is one country, but it's so vast. You know, people like Mm -hmm. to travel abroad these days, but, you know, traveling to California, traveling to the middle of the country, traveling to, to New York, you know, what makes those people so different, even in our own country. And there's there's always a process answer, process history and a certain process in those areas that that creates certain characteristics. So you know I've learned a lot about process. I've learned just a lot about the process of living and being a person through
0: travel. Wow. Wow. So and as you as you do this and and you you're traveling around and you're learning about people, How is that then impacting the work that
1: you're doing? I think the, like you mentioned earlier, and one of the themes of this this talk we're having is the people part of process is the most challenging. Mm. And if you're going to do any sort of project work or process work effectively, any sort of changes, it's change management. And change management fundamentally has to do with the psychology of people. And I do believe the more you work with, different types of people, this idea that diversity creates a stronger sampling so that you understand the commonality, but also the differences and where those things are derived in people. You just become a stronger professional. And that's why I always encourage people to travel. I encourage young people to get out there on work trips and meet different people from different places, because it's really, it's how you learn people is you have to learn as many people as you can and start to extrapolate. But I do think the more I travel around, I learn about different customs, different cultures, different types of people, their histories, where they come from. It always makes me a stronger and more enriched consultant because you can relate to more people. You can relate to their struggles. You can relate to their resistance. You relate to their engagement at work, white collar, blue collar, virtual, in person. Um, Yeah. So the more you get out there, I just think you have more data. So I'll say it in the scientist way you have more data and you can create more results. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but it sounds like you're really building your emotional intelligence, um, and this is one of the things you, you'll see as your baby gets bigger. You know, you start out as a as a new human being. You start out with the idea that everybody thinks like you, right? And as you grow up, you will keep, could, or you should be running into all these examples of people don't think like you. No, people don't think like you. The way you think is not the way everybody else thinks, and uh, it's one of the most important things for I think for us to learn as human beings. But as you point out definitely for consultants, right? Because it makes such a difference is when you're trying to help somebody, um, you know, to understand that what makes sense to you may not make sense to them. And and it might be, as you said, the process of where they came from, how they grew up, how they were educated, what the, even maybe about what the weather was like, you know, as, as they were growing up. And the more we can learn that, I think that's really a tremendous insight, Sam. Thanks so much for sharing it.
1: Yeah, of course. You know, consulting is a tough game. I you know, I think if you want to be good at it, you have to be multidisciplinary. I think you you can never be a consultant without attempting to master some of the people aspects for sure. Otherwise, you're always going to be having trouble in the field. Or at least mm. that's my experience. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So so Sam, what would be your one piece of of advice for a young person setting out then?
1: So for me, it would be get into process, honestly. Yeah. You know, it's still a hidden space in a lot of ways. And I know probably in the communities that we talk to, we live it, eat it, and breathe it. But I watch young people all the time. They can get through schooling, and the closest thing they have is an intro to operations class in their entire university curriculum or supply chain or systems right. engineering. And
0: they, and they might miss that if they if they in pre-med or study right. literature or becoming a teacher or something, and, and they would never take an operations class. It would never occur to them to do that.
1: Yeah, and I it's very niche. And it's funny because in my life I fell into it by happenstance, you know, through a series of steps and I'm in love with it, but I also just look at the impact. There is not a single person who couldn't learn lean, who couldn't learn six sigma, who couldn't learn more advanced forms of process engineering, process science and not be benefited in every aspect of their life. You know, young people who are looking for purpose or they're looking for a domain of knowledge Try it because even if you have some sort of affinity towards studying or doing process work, it's gonna help you no matter what you do. Because as we said, everything is process. There's nothing that's not process. So, you know, I just think it's such a critical foundational skill set. I think everyone should learn it. And that's my advice to young people, which is love it or hate it, look into it. Because a lot of people just miss it.
0: That's great. So thanks, Sam. Hey Sam, thanks so much for traveling with me to the Edges of Lean and uh... Good luck with your, with your future travels.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: This is Bella Engelbeck and I'd like to thank Sam Drauschak for being my guest at the edges of lean. What did you learn from this conversation? What ideas did it spark? We would love to hear from you. Find Sam at com or on LinkedIn. Find me on LinkedIn or at leanforhumans.com or comment wherever you watch or listen. And check out my friends in the Lean Communicators community at leancommunicators.com where you will find lots of great new content every week. The Ages of Lean is written and produced by Bella Engelbach with support from Podcasting. This is a Lean for Humans production.